Hello, and welcome to Conversations on Positionality, a podcast brought to you by the LSE Middle East Centre. My name is Anne Kirsten Ron. I'm a visiting fellow at the Centre, and in this podcast, I set out on a journey to explore how who we are as researchers shapes the work we do. In my own work, I often travel to contexts which are different from the one I grew up in and talk to people whose lives differ significantly from mine. And that has made me think a lot about how my nationality, gender, age and personality play out in my relations with people in the field. It has also made me wonder how we as researchers can become more aware of the challenges and opportunities that come with our positionalities and how we can strengthen the awareness about positionality within our academic institutions. To help me understand these questions better, I've invited a series of colleagues to share experiences and reflections from their work. And in this episode, I'm joined by Professor Simon Mabin. Simon is Chair in International Politics at Lancaster University and co-director of the Richardson Institute. His work focuses on sovereignty, sectarianism and regional order in the Middle East. And earlier this year, he published a new book with Cambridge University Press titled The Struggle for Supremacy in the Middle East, The Rivalry Between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And besides this, Simon is director of CEPAT, a collaborative international research project on sectarianism proxies and desectarianization. And one of the things I'm curious to hear him about is how he reflects on positionality in his role as a research leader and supervisor. But first of all, I want to say welcome to you, Simon, and thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me on the podcast. It's very exciting. Indeed it is. We've been working together for some years now as part of Project Separate, and we've had numerous conversations about positionality. But one thing that strikes me is that we never really discuss the term itself and what it means. So I'd actually like to begin by hearing you how you understand the concept of positionality. Yeah, thanks. I mean, people have written extensive, detailed, rich philosophical tomes on this. But I think my my approach to positionality is is broadly driven by a, a relatively basic premise, and that's to reflect on who you are, the things, experiences, attitudes that shape who you are and how you engage with the world. And acknowledging those sort of experiences, assumptions, and entanglements, if you will, is really central to, to reflecting on positionality, I think. So relatively basic, but not basic in the slightest. Well, definitely not basic in the slightest. And I tend to agree with you that positionality is also about reflecting on these intangible things that you mention. But I'm still curious to hear, when you are doing your work, when you're in the field, I suppose there's some aspects of your positionality that tend to play a bigger role. So which aspects of your own positionality do you reflect on the most in your work? So I think there's there's a couple of ways of taking this. There's the aspects of positionality that I'm conscious of and incredibly careful to downplay and incredibly careful to check and to leave at the door, so to speak. And then there's aspects of, of me as who I am that I want to articulate and emphasize. And I think starting with that, because I think that's that's a more positive component the thing that i really want to emphasize is the shared humanity i think it's all too easy to to get bogged down in in forms of division and identity markers that divide 
Whereas there is a fundamental thing that unites us, and that is our common humanity, our sense of being people. That is the sort of the, the most fundamental aspect of all of this. And a shared humanity breeds a sense of empathy. And particularly when talking to people from vulnerable communities, people who've endured incredibly traumatic experiences like many of the people of the region have over the past decade or so, I think it's really important to to emphasize that humanity, to emphasize that whilst we are striving for a broad, critical, aspirational objectivity, fundamentally we're all people and we have that shared sense of experience that really should be emphasized and through that empathized. And I think that's that's really right at the core of what it is that I'm trying to do when I'm doing interviews, trying to develop a a sense of safety and shared humanity. But in doing that, of course, there are things that I have to check. There are things that I have to leave at the door and I have to be conscious of my positionality, of the biases, of the identity markers that distinguish me from others and leave me in positions of privilege. Could you perhaps say a bit more about these things you tend to leave at the door? What aspects of your positionality is it that you seek to downplay? Well, I think the the biggest thing is that I am fundamentally an outsider, right? I'm an outsider to communities on a whole host of different levels. And that can be seen in the sense that once I finish the interview, either I literally get up and leave a room or I end a call or whatever it is, I am withdrawing from that environment and others do not have that luxury. And how do you address that in practice? You address it head on, I guess. You acknowledge that privilege. You acknowledge that this is a lived reality for people, particularly those in vulnerable contexts or people who've endured trauma. You acknowledge that that is a lived reality, a daily reality. And for me, I have the luxury, the privilege of being able to step back. Of course, you never fully step back from it. You never just erase it from your memory but it's a completely different way of of living with and engaging with those experiences. So I think building that solidarity, building that commonality with an interviewee, particularly from those particular backgrounds, is really important. Following up, maintaining relationships, maintaining contact. Some of the interviewees that I engage with for the book are people that I've been talking with for the past decade or so. So having that longer term um, relationship I think really helps to demonstrate that you are empathetic, that you are trying to articulate their voices rather than sort of swooping into communities, cherry picking these these quotes to support the arguments that that you've already approached coming into the uh, in the interview, and then swooping out, if you will. I'm curious to hear you, Simon. When you show solidarity, what do you say in practice? Because I was thinking, is showing solidarity and empathy also a way of compromising a sort of neutrality? I don't think we're ever really neutral, right? We have our our own views of the world. We have our own ways of engaging with the world, which is partly a product of our of our upbringing, of our socialization, but it's also partly the result of the work that we're doing, the engagements with the world that we have from our scholarship. And showing solidarity by expressing sympathy, empathy, common humanity for someone who's been displaced from their home. I don't think that pushes you away from neutrality or someone who's endured conflict or torture. That's not neutrality. That's common decency and a sense of humanity that really should be there when having conversations with people. 
I mean, I think I'd be criticized for it for some hardcore political scientists, but um, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with those criticisms. Do you think it's even more important for outsiders like us to express this sympathy and solidarity? I think it's a really tricky one, right? Because what we're dealing with is being in a position of an outsider, an outsider to a community, which raises questions about authority, authenticity as to who can speak about those communities, who can speak and articulate those communities, grievances, voices, experience, etc. Who is it that, that is able to, to do that? But that's also playing out in the context of, of a century of colonial exploitation, colonial experience, racism, devastating foreign policy decisions. So there's a whole host of issues that are shaping this. And it's very easy to be seen as being exploitative on the back of all of that. And it's very easy to be cynical about someone who comes and expresses those types of commonalities and solidarities in pursuit of a particular thing. You want to get some good stories to tell for your next book. So you build that relationship and then you discard it. And that's why I think it's important to have those longer term relationships where necessary. And of course, this is just speaking with and about particular communities. This isn't necessarily the case when I was interviewing former officials, for instance. Yeah, but as you say, maybe building these long-term relationships is also a way for you to show that your empathy is genuine and, and not just an instrument for you to get access to people. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that, I think, is really important. And it's it's acknowledged in a number of ways by people if they sense that it's genuine. How can you feel when people sense that your empathy is genuine? How do you usually see that? I see it in the types of conversations that we have. Um, we see it in the types of interactions that we have. You know social dynamics and you know when someone's not particularly interested in talking or someone who's sort of keeping themselves reserved just through our own experiences of, of life. And then you also know when someone builds that rapport with you and opens up and you can sense a, a degree of trust. You're also spending a good part of your work time supervising PhD students, being a leader of a collaborative research project where you sort of set the direction of other people's work in a sense. Do you reflect on your positionality in a different way when you're wearing the hat of a research leader? Yeah, I guess so. I guess it's a different type of privilege, right? And I keep coming back to, to privilege in this conversation, which of course isn't synonymous with positionality, but in the case of me being a tenured professor at a British institution with a good salary, a good post, the opportunity to go and do research, all of these things, stable job, the support of some wonderful colleagues, yourself included, just putting that out there. Um, I feel very, very lucky, very privileged. And I realize that there are a whole host of things that I have that other people don't have. And so that is something that I constantly reflect on. Um, in a number of different ways, a number of different arenas. And I think embarking on these conversations, I have to do it in a way that acknowledges that for me, it's relatively easy to have these conversations. But for other people, it isn't always going to be easy to have conversations about positionality, about privilege. There's all manner of issues bound up in it from sort of socialization, from experience, from particular 
instances across their lives, be it the academic or the non-academic, that condition how people react when you say positionality. For instance, talking with some of my PhD students from, from the region, and you mentioned positionality, and there has been, on occasion, a sense of confusion, of utter bewilderment. What is positionality? The sense that we as researchers are pursuing objective truth, scientific engagement with reality from a real positivist position. And me asking them to reflect on their own position, their own biases, their own privileges, their own experiences can be challenging and personally quite problematic. And in some cases, it can involve a real sort of deconstruction of the very notion of the self. I can give you an example of one who was from the Gulf, whose PhD was fascinating on societal divisions, and I'm being deliberately vague here, but they were complicit in reproducing those very lines of division that they were examining. And that was sort of an unintended consequence of socialization and reflecting on positionality prompted a sort of a deeper existential deconstruction of the very sense of identity that they had been brought up with. That must have put you in a really challenging position because as you mentioned, you are the privileged person in that conversation. So how do you challenge this PhD student on their views without re-emphasizing the power relationship? When I start with PhD students, I always stress that this is a relationship that isn't hierarchical it's one of shared learning the shared pursuit of knowledge and that I hope to learn from them as much as they will hopefully learn from me and so I articulate that this is a shared journey and that I will try and share my knowledge of particular things and I will hopefully learn from them and as a consequence of that it kind of builds up this mutual rapport of joint learning joint intellectual rumination if you will and so when I ask questions as to why certain terminology has been used or what it means to be saying those types of things, it's taken in the right spirit, I think, rather than a reinforcement of like a critical, why are you doing this? Okay, so what you're saying is that it's actually important to also pave the way yeah, or prepare the ground for having these sensitive conversations about positionality from a very early stage, perhaps even from the moment you meet your PhD student for the first time. Yeah, very much so. And I think if you talk to any of my PhD students, they will tell you that that is something I do very, very early because I believe it's the way to get a safe space for PhD students or any student for that matter to be able to reflect on incredibly sensitive, challenging matters that many of them are, are wanting to pursue in their research. And it's also something that's that's useful for the, the scholarly journey that they go on and that I'm privileged to go along with them. I'd like to go a little bit back to your role as researcher and your work as researcher. So we've already touched a bit on this, but I would like to go a little bit deeper into the challenges and opportunities that come with your particular positionality and how you navigate those. Because I was thinking if we look at today's world more widely, I guess many people would say that being a white male from the UK is probably one of the most privileged positions one can have. But do you also think this gives you certain privileges in your work as a researcher? Yeah, for sure. I am incredibly privileged to be born into the time and space that I was born into. I grew up in a 
broadly working class background. So there are class dimensions to my own positionality. But putting those aside, there are, yeah, I'm very, very fortunate to be where I am and to have the, the journey that I've been on. And that has, over time, opened many, many doors. And I'll give you an example. I was going to do research in Bahrain the last time I was allowed in. And this was in the spring of 2014. So it was a relatively sensitive time. It was a time when large numbers of academics were being turned away. And I was half expecting to be turned away. But by virtue of some of the relationships that I'd built up and by virtue of my nationality, I was able to arrange a meeting with the British ambassador to Bahrain. And I had a letter from his office that ultimately helped get me into the country to do the interviews that I wanted to do while I was there. Without that letter, without that invitation, I doubt I would have been let in. Colleagues of mine from Lancaster and elsewhere were later turned away. So I think that that letter stems from me being a British national and me being who I am in the position that I am in, opened a door, essentially. I think that's a really good example, Simon. I'm also curious to hear whether you being a white male UK citizen has sometimes been a backdrop. Yeah, of course it has. And this goes back to what we were saying right at the start about inclusion and exclusion and authentic voices and who has the, the sort of the authority and the ability to speak on behalf of people. And this is a, a debate that I continue to have with myself. It's probably the, the thing that I've asked myself the most over my research career. And also I have debates with PhD students and colleagues as to whether I have any right to be doing the work that I'm doing, whether I have the moral authority to even ask the questions that I'm asking, let alone to talk to the people that I'm talking to about the topics that I'm interested in. And it's a topic that I go back and forth on. It's a difficult one because, of course, I've shaped my career on doing the things that I've been doing. But there is a, a strong argument to say that I shouldn't have a right to do that because I'm an outsider. And what do you believe gives you the right to continue your research? People from the region who tell me that I do have a right to ask those questions, who think that the type of scholarship that I'm producing and the way that I'm producing it is of value and of interest and amplifies voices that aren't necessarily always amplified. And in that respect, that gives me the momentum to keep going for a few more days. But then the existential doubts start again, because I've been criticized for, for this in the past, rightly so, that I don't have the authentic right to speak about particular topics because I am not members of those particular communities. But then the argument that some people from the region who disagree with that premise is that my training, my the particular type of engagement that I do allows me to have a different perspective from those in the region who are invested so personally in many of these topics. So their argument is that me having a little bit of distance actually is useful in allowing me to reflect on the types of things that I'm reflecting on. That actually touches on another question I've been wanting to ask you, because we've talked so far mostly about how we reflect on ourselves, on our own positionality. But something which is, I think, just as relevant is how do we get to know how people view us? 
how do we get to know if the positionality that we try and pursue, that we try and adopt, is actually also consistent with the way that people see us? So I'd like to hear your reflections on, say, you're doing research in Bahrain. How do people view you? How do you think people view you? The answer, I think, to the last part of the question is I think people view me in lots of different ways, depending on their own positionality, which is probably a longer conversation to have in a more Gulf slash Bahrain focused setting rather than this one. But in terms of the more existential part of the question, I think the only way to do it is to ask and be open to honest assessments of what it is that you're doing. And when you were asking that question, I was thinking of conversations I've had with colleagues in completely different disciplines and looking at completely different parts of the world on decolonization and the broader quest to decolonize knowledge production and to decolonize engagement with the global south more broadly. And that starts at home, of course, it starts in the family, it starts in local communities, in quote-unquote the West, the global North, whatever you want to use. But it also starts with the self. And the way to do that is to open yourself up to very uncomfortable truths, claims, observations about your own experience, your own privilege, and your own complicity in a whole manner of things that are not comfortable to acknowledge. And it's very, very difficult to do that, very, very uncomfortable to do that. And I think that's the same thing that has to be done in the context that you've just been asking about. But you have to do it in such a way that is constructive with, with people whose, whose voices and perceptions you respect, but you trust will be fair in the world in which we're operating right now. And I'm thinking here, social media, which is probably the wrong place to be asking this type of question, of course. Just imagine going on Twitter and, and asking that and the types of responses you'd get would probably not be particularly useful. But if you find a useful, sensitive, critical set of voices, then you can get something useful out of it, I think. And it's really important to, to take stock. These are some really interesting, I think, important reflections. Unfortunately, we are approaching the end of the conversation. But before we wrap up, I would like to move beyond your personal experience and discuss what we can actually do to strengthen the conversation on positionality in academia moving forward. Do you think there are any topics or issues in particular that deserve to be addressed more in these conversations? I think we've got to have hard conversations and we've got to create safe and critical environments through which we can have those conversations And those conversations will take different forms as a consequence of different people involved, be it the interviewee or the interviewer slash facilitator slash student slash participant. But creating the right environment to have very difficult conversations is key, I think. But also having a willingness to have those conversations and making sure that people are actively going about and having the conversations that allow us to deconstruct some of the negative ways in which our research is impacted and we impact on our research. But yeah, positioning it more broadly within research training and within within scholarship. That sounds like a really fascinating idea. And I would love to discuss that with you ongoing outside the podcast, Simon. But for now, I want to say thank you for sharing your reflections with me. I know it can be sensitive sometimes to discuss these issues of positionality, so I'm happy that you wanted to open up. 
Thank you for inviting me. It's been a nerve-wracking pleasure, but a really important one. Thank you. And that was all the time we had for this episode of Conversations on Positionality. Thank you to the team at the LSE Middle East Centre for their work on the podcast. And thank you to the listeners for tuning in. In next week's episode, I continue the conversation together with Ahlam Chimlali from the Danish Institute for International Studies. Ahlam's research looks at some of the world's most vulnerable individuals, namely migrant women who are stuck in transit in North Africa. Ahlam will tell me about her relationships with these women and how she navigates her hybrid positionality, being a Danish migrant scholar with a migrant background. It's going to be a rich conversation and I hope you will all listen in. See you next week.